Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tegal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Tia Lyles-Williams, CEO of Lucas High Bio. Tia is the first African-American queer woman to own and lead a biopharma large-scale manufacturing company in the U.S., she has spent 20 years in the industry, formerly working for the US federal government, big pharma, small biotech companies before setting up her own CDMO. Tia is not only knowledgeable about the biotechnology sector, but has worked very hard in helping economic development in underserved communities. I'm incredibly excited to have Tia on the show. So hi, Tia. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me, Ron. I'm super excited to be here. Likewise, likewise. And uh, Tia, for, for those that don't know anything about you or your business, I would love you just to start by uh, giving everyone a little bit of a background as your, you know, how your career has developed and, and how you ultimately got to, to where you are today. Excellent. So I uh, started my career like most everybody in this industry of getting some type of formal degree. I got my bachelor's in biology at Howard University. Uh, from there, or during that time, I ended up working for, uh, or internships rather, NIH and Walter Reed and Howard University Cancer Center. Um, the Walter Reed internship turned into my first job officially in the industry. Um, I was working at uh, uh, later into the corporate world at Human Genome Sciences in Rockville, Maryland. They are now owned by GSK. I was there a few years. I actually have a chronic condition myself, so I took some time off. And then I restarted my career in the L.A. area, uh, specifically Thousand Oaks at Amgen and then Baxter, which is now Takeda. And then from there, I went to my first CDMO at Avid Bioservices for a few years. Um, I did about a year at Lonza Biologics in New Hampshire. And then my last place of employment or contract job was with Jazz Pharmaceuticals in Philadelphia uh, with my role as senior manager of uh, biologics development. Uh, specifically for drug substance manufacturing. Uh, so I've been in the, in the game around 20 years. Uh, also during that time, I got my master's in business from Full Sail University and a master's in regulatory science at the University of Southern California. Um, officially, we started Lucas Pie Bio in 2018 of October. So we just made two years recently. Uh, we are located in Philadelphia, PA. We are preparing to purchase commercial real estate and build our 60,000 square foot factory. Uh, we currently work out of Philadelphia CIC, I'm a member of the Boston CIC co-working space, and we are currently a team of 12 people. Very good. That's quite a background. <laughs> um, Tia, if I, if I described you as a real disruption in the nicest possible way in the sector, do you think that's a fair way to describe you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I officially got my unicorn title from Philadelphia Magazine yesterday <laughs> on paper in a, in a public magazine. Uh, and I feel great about it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things uh, when when I was uh, introduced to you was you are you are not the typical, uh, I suppose, leader of a CDMO that I have interviewed and come across in the sector. And, and I love that fact. And uh, you're someone that talks very passionately about kind of diversity and inequality in the industry. Um, so given your kind of 20 years in the sector, I'd love your take on you know, how uh, those very topical uh, issues right now around equality and diversity, how those have changed 
in the last 20 years? Are we in a better place now within pharma and biotech, uh, you know, as in 2020 than we were, say, in, in, in the 2000s? Or are things relatively still the same in your eyes? I think they are relatively same, if not worse, uh, due to the last four years of, of President Trump. Um, him and his administration the past four years actually gave permission for people to be more open about their racism and, and not willing to understand or learn um, everyone's cultural differences. Uh, and so I, said, I think we're about the same, if not worse. Um, you definitely saw a trend going down in biotech as far as diversity and inclusion uh, with regarding to having people of color in leadership positions. Uh, unfortunately, we have not changed anything on the manufacturing operating floor as far as operators actually make the drugs, do the quality control checks, things of that nature. Um, those are mostly still black and brown people without any opportunity uh, for a leadership position to get them uh, more of a corporate, corporate office uh, leadership situation. So uh, that's, that's where I stand on that. It's actually worse. Well, and it's it's a shame to to hear that, obviously, as well. And and do you think the kind of recent, I suppose, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter movement here in the U.S. and across the world, do you think that will have uh, any lasting effect on the sector? And I suppose linked closely to that, I mean, I suppose looking at you, someone like yourself who is now, uh, you know, a leader in the sector, what what you want to bring to that discussion as well? So, I'd be interested in your thoughts on on those two two topics. Uh, Black Lives Leader and effect on us. Uh, I, I'm indifferent. I don't know if it will have a direct effect. Just like I don't know if they have a direct effect on any industry. I think you have to do more than just protest and riot for change. Somebody has to actually push that button and perform change. Um, mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that uh, not only the, the biotech industry, but a lot of other industries are scared to push. There are times that with my previous employers, I won't name, that uh, I was frequently told that you cannot have this position because our company is not ready for that type of leadership. You're not ready for that type of change. What that means exactly from their viewpoint, uh, I don't know. But from my viewpoint, um, it looks as though you think that I will cause some type of chaos by being an African-American <laughs> queer person uh, in a leadership position forming, uh, uh, performing uh, in the same manner as my peers in a professional manner. Um, so I don't know if they would have a direct impact? Does it open some, uh, you know, now that it's known about the racism, I guess you say widespread, even though it's been known for years, <laughs> uh, covertly, it's just that now people are loud and proud about it. Um, it may, it may. I think COVID-19 has exacerbated um, the effects, uh, long-term effects on racism and the ability for people of color to generate wealth and have high paying jobs and have access to good uh, healthcare, even all the way down to the simple things of being able to work from home. Um, I just had this conversation uh, with, with one of my uh, mentees as case studies that I'm working with now. And uh, we were talking about that, you know, we forget sometimes uh, not only as the, the mass, you know, the majority Caucasian race, but also as people of color, that there still hasn't been a lot of inroads in the, in the employment sector for people of color, meaning uh, there are unfortunately a larger number of my, my fellow community members that are working uh, at below minimum wage jobs and have been living off that uh, type of employment for generations uh, to the point where COVID-19 is actually going to cause us to actually go backwards. Um, and employment opportunities because of the lack of job skills. 
Uh, we were talking about, you know, people, most people of color in our community, you know, they don't really have a whole lot of technical skills. Um, and it's simply because of lack of access and opportunity, not because they can't and they don't want to. When you work a job that you have to be on the floor, um, it could be fast food, it could be uh, warehousing at Home Depot, whatever. Most times they don't have a computer. They have a phone that they use to apply to jobs and they have a email address. And most of them don't have a personal email address. A lot of them use their job email address for different things uh, for them to access digitally and, and memberships and to get things done. So COVID-19 has has put a, a, a open, a, a gaping hole um, to people of color in which we as people of color, us to have the opportunities um, such as I to formulate these two companies and provide high wage jobs. We have to really go after and target uh, people of, of, of color to get these jobs so they can improve their job skill set, so they can have access to wealth, more importantly, be able to uh, legitimately take care of themselves and their families. Well, thank you for your thoughts. And it's obviously a very, uh, I suppose, you know, sensitive subject in many respects, but one that I think, you know, everyone's talking about now, and it's, it's a good thing that people are talking about. And if, you know, for our listeners that are, you know, many of our, our listeners are molecule to market or, or in senior management or running uh, either contract service businesses or on the farm and biotech side. What what can they do? So, you know, you mentioned you said the phrase push the button. What does that mean in reality? And, and I, I'm going to come on and talk about your role in, in part of this. But you know, mm-hmm. for any of our listeners that are thinking, OK, this, you know, what Tia is saying is absolutely right. And I want to make a difference. I want to make an impact. What advice would you have for those uh, leaders in, in, in the farm and biotech industry at the minute? Push the button means actually take the time with your senior leadership team or whoever your respective stakeholders are, look around, see how many people of color you have on staff in leadership positions, not office associate positions, not in the mail room, not at the front desk answering phones. Look at who's in these rooms at the table and seeing, okay, well, we need these needs, uh, these job positions filled uh, anyway, so how can we go after and make sure it's filled with people of color? More importantly, uh, promoting uh, people of color that may be um, uh, eligible for these positions in-house. And so what you do is to push that button is to assess that and you purposely look below. You look below for the, the, the people that have been working with you for 20 plus years and they've never made higher than lead associate, senior associate, or even if they even if they made it to supervisor, that's the case. Look at those because they actually have the skill set. They know the company like the back of your hand. More than likely, you've probably kept them there unknowingly or knowingly to make sure that the heartbeat of your company never stopped. And so now it's time to give them an opportunity to use that skill set that they have and take it to the next level. And more importantly, help your company get to the next level and make room for somebody else to keep up their heartbeat on the shop floor, as we call it, for your company. That's great advice. And I think that's, I'm sure people all take, uh, you know, some learnings from exactly what you just said there and maybe bring that back in, into their own business. And I and I look at you, Tia, and I, and I said at the start, I was very excited to meet you. Um, you are a breath of fresh air in my eyes of what this sector needs, <laughs> having been in it for 20 years. Um, so I'm just kind of curious to know what, you know, I suppose, what role you're going to play and what role you do play in, I suppose, in encouraging uh, people of color to, you know, to think big and, and actually, you know, look for those opportunities. Cause I, you know, you've had a very successful uh, 
two decades in the industry, and you've obviously been able to do that and get access to education. So what lessons and learnings are you going to bring uh, to people, I suppose, to inspire them to think big and, and, you know, and get these opportunities? What does that look like from your perspective? Gotcha. Well, one thing is making sure I provide that opportunity and actually that I'm actually putting action to these words that I'm saying here on your podcast today. <laughs> part of that is making sure that we actually place our facility in an underserved community. We are actually in conversation with the city of Philadelphia um, to actually do that, put the facility in actual Philadelphia in an underserved community. So that's one place. Um, also offering jobs to people in that community and letting them know that you don't have to have experience. All you need at minimum is a high school diploma. And we will put you in a 10 to 12 week training program uh, with one of our collaborators, Jefferson Institute for Bioprocessing. Um, they are an affiliate of Jefferson University and they have the, uh, they're one of the first uh, university systems and organizations to license the National Institute for Research and Biotechnology curriculum um, from Ireland. Uh, so they're the first to do that in the U.S. And so it's a great opportunity for you to come and train, get trained. You get paid during your training. You have immediate access to your benefits during training. And the best part of that is that you actually come out with a certificate uh, representing your training. Currently, all training for entry-level positions, especially on the manufacturing floor, um, is done on-site with real product. Uh, which can be a real liability <laughs> when you're making uh, a million dollar uh, type of biologic drug. So we're changing that and giving them the opportunity to really land and understand what they're doing prior to them getting on the manufacturing floor. Um, and then as far as uh, leadership positions, I've actively with my team went after those supervisors, those managers. I think the highest uh, level, my C-suite team, any one of my C-suite team was able to get in a pharma was associate director. We collectively have 100 years of experience. Uh, so I purposely went after those folks. Each one of these folks on my team, I've actively either worked alongside with or I actually reported to them uh, when I was just starting out many years ago. So that, that is the technical aspect. That is the actionable thing that we've actively done. Now, as far as inspiration during that time uh, or inspiration for as we bring on these uh, new employees and inspiring them to join the biotech industry, I would encourage you to do this or any industries you want to get into for that matter is that you have to take your education into your own hands. You have to take your experience into your own hands. School, I don't care if it's all the way to PhD, your school and your formal education, however you get it, is only going to give you so much. You have to take the education that is given to you and put that into action. And what that means is putting into action is going to get the supplemental books to help you understand the industry that you have a passion uh, for working in going and joining industry trade organizations to network and learn more about your industry and eventually learn about more about the role that you want to get into at the, in the industry. You have to take uh, your education and you have to take action into your own hands to actually execute. I think I just read an article by my, my fellow H.U. Bison, uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, and she said this exact thing. You do not have to ask for permission to lead whether that is to lead with your employer, lead with your family, lead within your individual life. No one needs to give you permission for that. And I think that's a big misconception. I had I had that misconception where I didn't go after roles or if I did go after roles and somebody would come to me and say, oh, you're not ready yet. Then I sometimes would take their word for it and say, oh, I must need to learn something else. I must need to go back to school to get this. I must need to go get the certificate. No, you don't. Not necessarily. If that person's not going to, uh, that, that's, 
I guess you say in control or, or in charge of granting you that opportunity, then you have two other options for you to go after that opportunity yourself. Either you can stay there and train up. If it's something that you really do need to train up on, pay for that, pay for it and go get it done. Do not rely on a job to pay for you to up your skill set. Go get the shit done yourself. Or if you've done all that and they still passed on you, which they did me many times, I would leave and go to the next company and go get the role that I want to go get. There is nothing wrong. You see it in biotech, especially with people of color. You will notice we don't stay at our respective employers no more than a year and a half, two years, max three, because we know if we stay too long. The employer gets comfortable with us, again, being the heartbeat and doing the actual work of the company. And they don't want to give us the leadership role because they're afraid of things falling apart on the shop floor. The best way for them to learn that is for you to leave and they'll figure it out, which they always do. But in, in turn, you get what you want and you get to embark on that leadership role, that next level of your career um, that you're passionate about. Do not ask for permission. It's like Nike. Just fucking do it. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Very inspirational. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And I wanted to ask you about uh, Philadelphia and, and where you are building your facility. Um, you know, certainly when I moved to the US, it was it was an area that you know I was told there's, there's a, a great kind of history in Pennsylvania. Uh, and obviously, right at the start there, you mentioned it being where you're placing your facilities kind of in a uh, underserved uh, community. And so, I'd, I'd, you know, if, if our listeners don't know much about that part of the world, particularly from a biotech perspective, could you give us a bit of context into what's happening wider in that, that community and, and why, why you're deciding to build your facility there? Gotcha. Well, Philadelphia is becoming known as the new Silicon Valley versus Silicon Valley because of uh, particularly Spark Therapeutics' ability to get the first, uh, I think it's gene vector, viral vector drug approved by FDA. Excuse me. So there are a number of gene and viral vector companies popping up in the Philadelphia area it is becoming, from my perspective, the next Boston, Cambridge Square, where you have this community of life sciences all around. Um, and so the missing thing, uh, one thing that they're missing there is the manufacturing piece. So there are no CDMOs in, in Pennsylvania. Lucas Pi Bio is and will be the only CDMO uh, currently in Pennsylvania. Uh, and so that's really hurting the city as far as bringing uh, or showing a making a huge difference economically to the area. Uh, to give you a comparison, uh, with Boston, Cambridge area, you got tons of startup life sciences, but you also have big pharma companies with their own manufacturing facilities, or you have some that are not too far down the road, such as uh, New Hampshire, right? And then maybe coming up to to Jersey with the other big pharma companies in Jersey um, and their manufacturing facilities. So Pennsylvania is, is in the right spot at the right at the right time and right. Uh, for this particular type of business. The other thing is, is that um, the city of Philadelphia is, beyond what you, majority African-American. Uh, and so they're the ones that's being left out of this new surge of, of uh, uh, economics in Philadelphia as far as acquiring more dollars for the city. Um, they're, not, they're not getting the opportunities. Um, even in owning small businesses, uh, they have been significantly left out and they were actually one of the city, cities highlighted as not being able to uh, receive any of the COVID-19 uh, relief for their small business. So it's really hit the city of Philadelphia hard. And so this is the opportunity for me um, not only actively participate in the life science economy in Philadelphia, but also to give back for our social impact goals and give um, people in Philadelphia opportunity to support themselves again 
and support themselves in a uh, more financially healthy way with that leg up. Uh, I think I said it earlier today that the average salary is 38K for a manufacturing operator in, in today's market. And um, it's been that way for a long time. When I started, I started at 40K. And that was with a degree and some experience coming from uh, the research world. Uh, so with us, we're offering a minimum of 50K. Um, this gives them, again, a, a significant opportunity to really start to generate wealth. And just to be honest with you, be able to financially support themselves, even without the wealth piece. You can successfully financially support you and your family with a minimum of 50K plus benefits. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a, it's, you know, fascinating and, and really great to hear, I suppose, the criteria and goals that you're setting to be able to you know, give people an incredible, I suppose, base salary to, to look after their family, especially in this kind of difficult economy that we're, we're in now. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. And I want to ask you about Lucas Pie Bio and, and obviously, you know, tell us a bit about the fundraising mission, I suppose, mission and journey you've been on. You know, I understand you've, you've raised lots and lots of money. Uh, that's going to allow you to obviously break ground and, and build uh, what I suspect will become a world-class biologics uh, CDMO facility in, in that part of the world. Just talk our listener through that, that journey so far. You know, how, how's it been like getting fundraising? What have you been able to raise? And uh, yeah, I'm sure you've got some good stories to share. Uh, well, it's been long and hard and arduous, as I'm, I'm sure many startup founders say. Um, but particularly for biotech, it's extremely hard because even today, the investor and venture capital world that claim they invest in life sciences do not understand the true cost of life sciences, meaning they don't understand the commercialization process. They don't understand how much money it takes to put a molecule or a device through that process and successfully get them uh, uh, get them into the commercial market. Um, and then with us being a CDMO and not being a research and development type traditional biotech type company um, is even more extremely hard. So we don't qualify uh, for a lot of the government initiatives that are going on for life sciences. Those are uh, particularly for R&D firms of actual products and assets for the market. For us, because we are a service provider, the only thing we qualify for right now is to receive financial assistance from the federal government to build the facility. But the catch is, is that I already have to have the land for them to give me that funding. And so uh, going through this, through this fundraiser uh, uh, process for us, uh, yes, we raised 50 million in venture capital from Black Pro Global Investments. Uh, we are more, most recently starting to attract um, additional investors as we speak. Uh, and I'm undergoing some due diligence with a few of them now as we speak. Um, but it was not uh, easy. And I think, I, I, well, I believe, or I am a bit of a unicorn in this, in this instance, um, because Black Pearl Global uh, Investments is a life science investment company, particularly for uh, things of that nature, like manufacturing. I think they're doing a little bit of a telemedicine so things in the in the digital health space with med tech and health tech software. And so I, I've been lucky to have the opportunity to be connected with them um, and receive that, that finance. Uh, and then on the other side of it, you know, there are some things for our finances to be funded, for those funds to be funded into our accounts. And one of which was to be in due diligence for a property. And I'll get to that in a minute. 
and it has signing at least one customer, which we're still in due diligence for right now. Hopefully we get the good news next week. Uh, but the first part, as far as the commercial real estate, has not been easy as well. Um, being an African-American queer person trying to buy a significant uh, large size of, of commercial real estate um, has not be has not been easy, and it's not. I'm, I'm assuming at this point, this is my first time going through this process. Common for somebody of my caliber, and so what I go through right now is that when I meet with these landowners or these property owners, they want to get into the to the meat of my business for some reason to use as verification as whether or not I'm qualified to buy that parcel of land. Um, I recently spoke with. Um, uh, a real estate investor who was seasoned, she told me, she said, yeah, you can tell them it's none of your, their fucking business. She was like, as long as you have an agreement to pay that lease that, you know, pay the rent that they want you to pay, or you're going to, you know, pay whatever they're selling the price for, um, that's all that should be. And as long as you have your term sheet and everything else to verify your finances, there's no real reason that they should be asking for your business plan and digging into that. And so it's been a bit of a fight. Um, because I've started to walk away from those deals. Uh, and some people say, well, that might've cost you the deal. Well, it might've cost me the deal, but it just saved my business. Life sciences right now is a hot topic. You have people that have never been in this industry trying to jump in, trying to build a manufacturing facility, all to get that federal dollar to do the COVID-19 manufacturing. Uh, for instance, you who's that? Kodak Film is now jumping into the life science industry, the same as Fujifilm did, the same as Samsung has done. And I believe 3M uh, have some bio or at least pharmaceutical manufacturing capabilities to date. So that's, that's been a difficult part of it. And then as far as on the, on the uh, venture capital uh, and the, or getting the customer in a thing, sorry, to meet their requirement for our, our account to be funded, um, that's been a bit of a, a not an easy or an uphill road as well. Uh, they don't tend to, they don't take us at Lucas Pop Bio at face value. Um, they tend to want to dig in and have meetings and they break it up. So normally, you know, with a, we're going through the sales process of a customer. Um, normally you want to do a, at least an intro meeting, a good one to really assess what, what type of molecule that customer has. Where are they in their clinical development uh, for the pipeline of their assets and what immediate services do they need? And so all that stuff sounds like it should take at least an hour and a half, two hours to unwrap that and introduce yourself as a CDMO. Um, whereas I'm currently getting to do dealers. OK, well, we'll do 30 minutes here and then we'll do an hour here and we'll reschedule 50 million times before you speak with me. Um, that's what I'm going through right now, but I have to be patient, right? Because I'm trying to go go after these customers. And what I'm finding is that uh, I'm a different type of CDO, CDMO or leader, obviously on the outside, um, but also knowledge-wise. So uh, I'm tend I find when speaking to these startup companies, so that's our target market. Is startup companies are kind of in that that seed area. They're ready to start manufacturing material and get things ready for animal studies, toxicology studies. And some of the lingo that I would expect uh, some of these seasoned leaders to have, they do not. And so it's a bit of a conflict and making sure that I present myself and give them the information they need without me looking like a know-it-all or an asshole when I recognize that they don't know what they claim to know. Um, and walk in that fine line so we can close the deal at the end of the day. And that includes pricing as well. Uh, we just did a bid and we were significantly underbid it by a competitor. Um, simply just for us not to have that contract. Wow. Well, it's it's funny you should say that because my next 
uh, my next question was around um, was around cost of manufacturing, and I know it's something you're what you're passionate about. And I actually read it in a recent article that you did with Philly Magazine about um, talking about uh, bringing down the cost of managing uh, manufacturing biologic products. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a key goal uh, for you in in, in terms of uh, Lucas Pie Bio, but also just I suppose a wider uh, you know, focus on the industry to try and lower the cost of drugs in this in this sector. That's obviously known for for high high cost manufacturing. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's it's definitely a huge goal for us. I think uh, right now we're in a bit of a situation as an industry because of the HR three bill uh, with former uh, Congressman Lewis John Lewis passed uh, with Pelosi. Uh, so per that bill, drug makers, not necessarily seeding over the people who actually discover and make the drugs and put them in the market excuse me, uh, they are only allowed to charge 20% above market, uh, above the cost to make that drug in the commercial market. And if they do not charge that price, then I believe they're penalized of, uh, what is it, 85%, I want to say 80 to 85% of their gross revenue for that drug in the market, which is crazy. Um, and here's why that's crazy. Uh, drug makers, big pharma, they don't care about that 85% hit one thing. I think the other thing that needs to be brought out to the open, which you probably heard me say in multiple interviews and, 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 and uh, uh, media, is that we need to discuss the producer fees. You cannot ask drug makers to only charge 20% of the cost of making that drug when the cost of making that drug continues after it's approved for the commercial market. And I'm not talking about just the manufacturing cost. I'm talking about the cost requirements to keep the drug in the market per FDA requirements. FDA requires you to pay an annual PDUFA fee for each drug that you have in the market and to make it, and you have to pay it for as long as it's in the market annually. This fee is anywhere from 1.8 up to $2.5 million per drug. That's crazy. And so if you're going to do a bill with, with the HR3 bill, then I think it should have been it should have been written from both sides of the spectrum to come to a happy medium to try to bring down the cost of drugs. These drugs, especially biologics, are extremely expensive to make. The raw materials and the equipment are extremely expensive to procure. It is not a cheap deal. Um, to give you an average cost, uh, I got a quote for some equipment. Um, that they want, and this is just for a 30,000 square foot uh, manufacturing suite, okay? This doesn't include the, the QC rooms or the gowning rooms and all that. This is just the immediate manufacturing space for um, biologics, uh, manufacturing, upstream and downstream, and final filtration for the drug substance. So this is the active part of the drug for those that you don't know uh, what these terms are. It was $20 million dollars. It included two 2,000 liter bioreactors, two 500 liter bioreactors, uh, four wave reactors. So that's all the upstream stuff. Then you had the downstream stuff of, what was it? Two or three active skids and whatever the millipore uh, viral filtration, and all that stuff, $20 million. And y'all want to do? You want to? You want to have this HR three bill to say y'all need to stop charging the cost for these drugs? Cost for a batch of drug in the market right now is probably higher, but the number that I had was two point five million per a batch. 
That does not include raw materials. Wow. I'm in the wrong business, Tia. I'm in yeah. the wrong business. Super, <laughs> right. Super, super expensive. So I think we need to have a, 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 a come to Jesus moment with the federal government. Um, I think on my my peers in the industry need to be more open about what this stuff costs and stop trying to keep it in this secret bu- bubble because you want it to be a barrier of entry for smaller companies to get in. And I'll get to that later. Um, and we need to allow the, 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 our, our federal leaders to come down, tour our facilities, let them actually sit and watch the people make the drug. I'm talking about all shifts, day, midday, and overnight shifts. And let them see how much that, you know, we should reduce pay for these employees. Let them make that decision and see what they say. It is not an easy job and it's super expensive to, for this equipment. And it costs a lot of money to train people uh, on how to use that equipment properly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I remember, you know, many years ago when I worked uh, at a CDMO and uh, part of my induction was I had to work uh, in the clean rooms for a week. And, right. I, and uh, no, that was hard work. Right. <laughs> and, at- funny, right? People complain about the face mask, but I'm used to wearing a face mask for 12, 14 yeah. hours on the manufacturing floor. It was, it, you know, I think you, you know, the, the, I remember, you know, distinctly remember how, the heat of it and, you know, how warm it was in there, having to stay, you know, keep a concentration and, you know, you know, obviously you can't put your fingers in your mouth or anything like that. You've got to keep it, you know, think about hygiene and things like that. I mean, pretty stuff that's natural to us now post COVID, but, you know, 20 years ago, no one cared about, but in a clean room environment, it's, uh, yeah, operators, I suppose in all the facilities I've seen are uh, you know, incredibly hardworking. And uh, yeah, so it's, I think it's great to hear the potential opportunities that you have coming for operators in, in, in Philly. And I want to just take a quick sidestep in, in your success in your career has been, has been uh, really impressive. And, you know, I'm certainly excited for where you are now and, and what you're creating, but I wanted to ask, you know, if you could go back and give, uh, you know, 25 year old Tia some advice, what, what would you say to her? At 25 years old, uh, be patient. And, you know, I would tell her the same thing that I did. Don't ask for permission. Get off your ass and go get it. You don't need the permission. You got all the tools that you need. You've already done all the work that you need to do as far as uh, educating yourself um, outside of your immediate role of being an operator on the floor. So go get it. It's funny. Um, at that age, this is when, probably a little bit earlier around that time, but this is when Accelerex first came out with single-use equipment. This is before GE bought them out. And um, at that time, I was working at, at Human Genome Sciences at Rockville, Maryland. So somehow, I, I don't know if I got an article or something in my, in my mailbox at work, and uh, I went crazy. I'm like, what? And the way Accelerex was selling it, their, their tagline was, um, you know, you can you can set up this equipment, it's single use, no more CIP, SIP, and you can literally put it up in a strip mall, right? Because you had its own self-contained bubble and you stuck your arms through to manipulate the the, the plastic bi-rack and things of that nature at that time. And so I did so much research on it. I, I went to my boss who was a, a, a manager and I just thought the world of him at that time. So I came to him. And I was like, look at this. Did you see this? I was like, we should rip all this stainless steel out of this uh, out of this facility, put this up. We'll never have to do all this hard work, make it easier for workers and, and get product out the door faster. And so he kind of looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, no, we're not ripping anything out. But, you know, nice. Go, go back. Go back to work. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, no, I'm about to change something. So I had called a sales rep 
at uh, Accelerates. And me and him talked back and forth for probably three to four weeks. And so he probably just knew I was getting ready to cut a check soon, right? Um, and so anyway, of course, it, it never went down. And then he stopped eventually answering my phone calls. But at that moment, um, that's when it, that's when I was sparked with that bug that, hey, I can do this myself. I can literally, you know, cut, not cut corners regulatory wise, but cut corners on cost and the length of time it takes to build these facilities and ultimately bring down the cost of uh, drugs for the people that need them. Um, so I've been super excited about this for a long time. Um, and that's partially when I took that step to say, hey, I don't need nobody's permission. Um, I'm going to work on this and, and get it to the point where I can do it on my own. Yeah, and, and good for you as well. And I have to ask, where does, you've talked about, I suppose, this uh, this drive that's in you and, you know, you mentioned also supplementary education earlier on. Where does this come from? Is this something that you inherited from your parents? Is it just part of your DNA? But you have a, you know, I, you strike me as a very scrappy person. <laughs> and I'm just curious to know where it comes from. You know, is this just part of who you are and you've always been like that? Uh, I think it comes from, comes from my mom. Uh, you know, before there, we didn't have homeschool uh, years and years ago. I'm 36. So I could say that I'll be 37 on the 21st of this month. Um, but uh, at that time when I was starting out at very, very young, we didn't have homeschool. And my mom's a stay-at-home mom. So she was homeschooled before the term homeschool was there. Um, and then I went to a seven-day Adventist private school and uh, was quickly uh, moved up to almost first grade at four years old. But my mom said, no, not that far. So it was kindergarten. And I think by me being always the person that was underage in my classroom and always wanted to make sure that I did not fall behind and then also having a teaching for my mom to say, you know, we're going to, if you want, you want to do something yourself, that's how you do it. Here's the orderly fashion to do things. Uh, she had us on a schedule, just like a school day. We had to be up. Uh, by 7 30 8 o'clock with breakfast and we were she taught us uh throughout the day for about two and a half three hours and then we normally had some type of field trip to the zoo or somewhere that was going on free i was raised in uh houston texas when i was a kid i think it, it came from there i was always an avid reader i still am and anytime i, wa I had a question the, the famous line of between her and my dad was go look it up and so at that time we didn't have, remember now internet ain't that old so you know, me and you first started out, and I'm assuming me and you're close in age. If we're not, that's okay. When we started out, there was only the dictionary and the encyclopedia, right? We had no internet. So if you wanted to look up something, it was going to take you a little bit of time to flip through the pages, read about it. Um, when you did research papers or what, you know, as they started you out in elementary school, write a, uh, what do they call it, a book summary, right? Write a book summary on Dolphins or whatever the case. The whole point is, you had to go to the library, use that uh, library card, use the, uh, I forgot what they used to call them, the catalog cards to find where the book was at, go get it, sit there and take notes and research. And so I think that foundation uh, that was given to me via my, my parents, my mom in particular, and uh, having that, that private education from kindergarten to second grade uh, set the foundation for me to be a go-getter. And then that same thing was there when I initiated public school, because again, public school was a lot different. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I always kept up uh, with my peers and or surpassed them. And so I've just been like that my, my whole life. I love it. I love it. And yeah, it's funny you were talking about the library there. And I mean, I was chatting to one of my team uh, a few months ago, and I can't remember how the conversation came about, but I talked about when I was at university and, you know, uh, do my degree and, you know, everything I, I did, it had to be 
referenced in books and I had to physically yes. go and find all the books in the library. It's this huge library in the northeast of England and six, seven floors. And I was up and down in the elevator trying to find these books. And obviously everyone was fighting for the same books. And it yeah. was, uh, it, you know, a completely different, different world to, to education these days. And, you know, at the touch of a button, being able to reference anything. But yeah, but I'm sure we... I'm sure we got some skills at that point in time. We acquired skills that have done us, uh, have been useful in, in life. And uh, and I just, my last kind of few questions I'm going to go on to in a moment, I'm just going to ask you about the sector and mm-hmm. shifts and trends. And before I do that, I just wanted to ask, how, how would your best friend describe you in three words? Ooh, three words. Three, like three separate words, not a sentence? Yeah, <laughs> three separate words, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a go-getter. Uh, funny, <laughs> and um, what's the word? Uh, hmm, funny go getter, and probably uh, influence, influential, influence or persuasive maybe. Persuasive. There you go. Yeah. Would your mom say the same things? Yeah, she would say I got a a, a lot of drive. Uh, she would say I'm extremely intelligent, and uh, she uh, definitely considered me to be a. Uh, uh, my family's feedback, I mean, even hers, is always collectively that I'm, I'm just I'm different. Um, I see things differently, and I'm I'm just I just have this high drive for success, and pretty much don't let anything stand in my way. <laughs> you can clearly see that from your career uh, trajectory, and so I wanted to spend the last five minutes talking. Obviously, we've talked about your business and your stage and uh, my understanding is you will uh, the facility will be up and running uh, at some point next year which is which is very exciting and I, I wanted to talk about the kind of uh, I suppose general shifts and trends and things that you're going on that you're seeing going on right now both from a COVID and, and non-COVID perspective and and I suppose where the opportunities lie for you as a business uh, I suppose moving forward when you do uh, finally open the doors. Got you. Well, as far as what we're doing, as far as innovation and, and based on the COVID of, of 19, we was actually doing pre-COVID-19 was that a majority of my staff, if they're not actually touching the process, meaning making the actual drug or testing it um, for analysis, then they are not going to be on site. They will be working from home. Um, the benefit of that and the way we, the reason why we can do this is because we're going to have a completely cloud electronic documentation system that people can simultaneously work in uh, together to update results, um, uh, release material. Uh, we actually have the opportunity. We're going to be using a master control software platform. And with that platform, we can actually uh, work with the customer to do the batch release operations, meaning co-release the product to the market or to the next step of manufacturing, if you will. Uh, we'll be having mobile and web applications. Uh, one is called the bioprocess tracker. It allows our customers to follow the manufacturing process of their product at a super high level. We have another proprietary app running behind it called the BioSupply Tracker. Um, this is what's going to allow us to maintain control of our supply chain so we'll know exactly what raw material needs to be ordered. We get the similar to the Amazon system. I can actually see it being fulfilled, uh, like the pick list or whatever, and uh, I'll be able to see real time when everything's packaged and ready to go and on its way, and then when we receive it, via an RFID system, we'll be able to scan it um, and, and let everybody know is, is in-house and what the next steps are. And it'll be fully integrated uh, into our documentation system. So everything that is used in the process is accounted for um, at all points of use, if that makes any sense. So 
also gives us a, a, an opportunity to get the product a lot faster, uh, get it out the door a lot faster, but more importantly, being able to track the components that went into the pro- uh, manufacturing process of the drug. So anything goes wrong, um, I know exactly what was used in that process versus having to take the time to search and estimate, oh, well, maybe half of this raw material was used in this batch and that batch. No, everything will be uh, accounted for um, accordingly. And I think what COVID-19 is, is going to help bring about as far as change in our industry um, is allowing, hopefully, uh, FDA to do their audits a lot more uh, efficiently. I mean, you know, we do plan on having uh, cameras in our manufacturing room. Uh, we do plan on having a lot more windows um, so that people can, from that's doing an ordering process for a customer, do not have to gown up uh, and, and possibly compromise the manufacturing suite. Um, they can simply view it from outside or from their the desktop or laptop via the camera system. Um, ho- and I believe that would bring down costs. Uh, hopefully that Padufa fee, because that's what the purpose of that is for, uh, is to pay those uh, those representatives or those associates that's in the FDA department to be able to fly and and and, and transport themselves to sites physically to do all this auditing to make sure that we're doing things uh, accordingly per their requirements. So I think it's going to be a a huge digital shift. I think it's going to force our industry to have more control over our supply chain compared to our uh, competitor industries like the car manufacturing industry or even a retail industry with with Walmart, Amazon, for instance. Um, And I think it's going to change the way we work in the industry by providing more employment opportunities but more for people who are enjoy working in the digital space. Uh, and, and that way we can be in a more uh, lean operating fashion and not have to have all these bodies on the floor doing everything. Um, hopefully the equipment will follow that digital uh, shift as well, not just being fully automated and no human interaction, but being a little bit more responsive and predictive of the manufacturing process to prevent uh, you know, drug shortages or or slow release of these products uh, into the commercial market. It's funny because one of the, the the things I described to you as right at the start of the show was a disruptor. <laughs> and <laughs> and what, what you've just described there, Tier, is what, what I would class is, is, I suppose, a new breed of CDMO that is uh, more digitally savvy, uh, you know, high level of visibility, more cloud-based, I think a leaner business with uh, maybe less bodies, but lower lower cost of production. Uh, that's certainly exactly. you know, and and then and then from what I've understood from you on on you know the chatting with you today is also a level of um, corporate responsibility from day one. Uh, you know, yeah. it's, and it's 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 interesting that you know a lot of the large companies in the sector talk about you know, corporate social responsibility and you know playing a role in the communities, but it's quite interesting to hear you talking about it. Is almost one of your core values from day one is going to be built in and baked into the entire. Uh, business, which is which is fascinating, uh, and and you know I'm I'm very excited to see your business come to life in the next you know year or so, and uh, you know and I've got no <laughs> no doubt that you're gonna gonna succeed, and and we're we're almost out of time. I just had one one final question, which is is very general. It's kind of you know, are there any final kind of comments or requests uh, that you've got uh, of our audience? Um, you know if you know, is there anything you want to say to them to, to maybe get in touch with you? What what would be that comment? Um, as far as any advice or what I would want is for more accountability and transparency with my peers in the industry um, so that we can actually make the changes that we all claim to make, um, which is lower the, the barriers of access and lower the, the barriers for costs 
uh, for patients to actually be able to afford these drugs. I think that's extremely important, um, especially during the pandemic, uh, where some drugs are going uh, on shortage uh, because people or, or manufacturers are not able to manufacture them because of this whole COVID-19 pandemic. People want to make sure that they're, they're doing what they need to do for this stupid Operation Warp Speed. Um, there are people that are not able to get their medication because they're being told that it is out uh, out of stock and or one in particular situation, person, extended family member was told that she could not receive her uh, lupus medication because the president ordered them not to give it out. Real talk. Now that's a lawsuit. It should have been a lawsuit, but she didn't tell me until way after. Um, so these are things that we need to, we need to be uh, courteous to each other. We need to be respectful uh, to each other and do what we're supposed to do just to be decent human beings. Um, th this current president that is on his way out the door, quit taking what he says at face value. Some of the stuff that he's talking about, he has no control over, even at the executive spot. That's why we have checks and balances. So we need to start being human beings first before being uh, members of our respective political parties. So that's the one thing I want to say. Um, other than that, I mean, I'm excited about what's getting ready to come. Um, uh I think we need to, to, to come together again with that whole decency thing. And then the other part is with, with our responsibility <clears throat> as people that have the opportunity to start these large companies, make sure that we give back and support the ecosystems that we are operating in um, so that we, if we're going to disturb the community, we disturb it in a positive way, just like Congressman John Lewis. You make good trouble in these communities for them to not only survive, um, but to to lead and thrive uh, within their respective communities. I love that. You know, great. You know, decency, respect, uh, courtesy. It's uh, a lovely way to end. What's well, been a, a great conversation, Tierra. I, th I think I could speak to you for hours <laughs> if uh, if time would allow. And uh, you know, I'd love to get you on maybe uh, you know sometime next year for around two because I think. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you is because you are very different to what this sector is used to. And I mean that, you know, in the in the nicest and most respectful way. I love yeah. what you're doing with your business. I love the challenges that you're going through and what people should know about how difficult it is to do what, what you're doing. And I'm hoping that, uh, you know, people in our sector yeah. listen to this and, uh, you know, have a slightly different view on on people in their businesses, you know, following this conversation. So thank you for for making the time because I know how busy you are. So thanks for, for coming on as a guest uh, on Molecule to Market. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to speaking with you again, Ramon. Thank you. Hi again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter and we will see you again next week. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.